Well, before we start, um, I'd like to affirm or confirm uh, my gratitude and blessing in having some guys to preach in my stead uh, over the summer. It started out with me uh, trying to help them, and then they helped me too. So um, I'm still having some tests, and um, I'm going to a specialist, so pray for me in that. Probably hasn't helped uh, almost three decades of preaching and leading worship. Uh, probably didn't help. So uh, let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and be ready to receive what you have for us. And in this story, Lord, which is well known, I pray we would find ourselves and that you would lead us and bless us and shape us as we go through this. Lord, we are yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the early morning of December 28th, 1908, a devastating earthquake destroyed the flourishing and beautiful city of Messina, Italy. Over 80,000 people died on that day. Though one of the most beautiful cities of all in Italy, the city's outward appearance did not reflect the inward condition of their heart. <clears throat> the night before the earthquake, a series of resolutions were passed into law by the town's governing authorities, allowing for public conduct and behavior which was explicitly violent and wicked against the principles of God. The prevailing attitude of the people had become so irreverent and against God that three days before Christmas, the city's newspaper had published a front-page article condemning belief in God and publicly challenging God to show himself by an earthquake. Three days later, God revealed his power, and Messina and its surrounding districts were shaken and laid to ruins. For those who to refuse to bow to God, there is a penalty to pay. Deadly consequences await those who reject God's absolute sovereignty in their lives. God understands, God forgives with great mercy those who wrestle with their sin, but his justice rules and reigns too. His righteousness burns against those who follow the path of their own shadows. There are no walls high enough or strong enough to protect those who reject the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. He'll either give us over to our slow death of sin or he'll take away the protective fortresses that we hide behind. The kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, is God's redemptive love, righteous justice, and glorious holiness pressed into every facet and dimension of human endeavor and enterprise. God desires to rule over everything that he has created, and most specifically, to rule in the hearts and souls of his created human beings. Jesus told us to strive for the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6.33, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus 
rules and reigns with absolute authority as king within the kingdom of God. And in being God, he created us. And as his subjects, he expects absolute allegiance and obedience to him. And Jesus put it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus' words here rang true in Joshua's life. When Joshua succeeded Moses as a new leader, God told him, Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. What this means is we cannot enjoy victory over our struggles in life when we do not have the faith to do what God tells us to do. Say that again. What this means is we cannot enjoy victory over our struggles in life when we do not have the faith to do what God tells us to do. Faith begets obedience. And we cannot say we truly believe God and trust God if we refuse to obey him. Faith without works is dead, we know. But faith without obedience is the devil's faith. The Apostle John declared this in 1 John 5, 4. He said, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this victory has come to over the world is our faith. Faith in God trusts in the living God, in the true God, and in God's promises. And faith obeys God's commands. Exactly, immediately, and with with good delight and joy. And this is the kind of faith that empowers us to get victory in our lives. The power of the kingdom of God is bold obedience of faith in God. And we find ourselves in our text today in that very place. Last week we left with Joshua at the base of this formidable walls of a fortified city of Jericho, positioned before the captain of the Lord of hosts. And he's on his face and he's bowed down and with sandals taken off knowing he is standing on holy ground. And before victory could come over the forbidding walls of Jericho, the walls of God's will and the hearts of God's people needed to be removed first. And as Joshua reverently reverently bowed before the throne of the heavens, those walls came down. And by grace, I pray that today God's word will remove the walls within our hearts as we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because when we truly do surrender our lives and our hearts to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we will face formidable Jerichos. We will face barriers that stand in the way of our spiritual progress. We will face walls that seem to be too high and wide to overcome obstacles in our path keeping us from joyfully making our way deeper into the kingdom of God and deeper yet in the heart of God. History tells us that on his retreat from Greece after his great military expedition there King Xerxes boarded a Phoenician ship along with a number of his Persian troops but a fearful storm came up And as the captain told Xerxes that the book would sink because it was too big of a load, 
the king turned to his Persian soldiers on the deck and said this, It is on you that my safety depends. Now let some of you show your regard to your king. The commander of the army bowed to Xerxes, Xerxes and threw himself overboard, as did soldier after soldier until the load was lightened and the ship made into the harbor. Such is the place we find Joshua's heart as we open chapter 6. Humbly bowing before the king of the universe in ready obedience to what he's been told, cast himself headlong into the unknown waters of what seemed to be an impossible situation before him. But unlike the commander of the Persian army, Joshua knew he would survive. Not only would he survive, but he knew that with God at his side, or, or rather with him being on God's side, he would know and see the joy of victory, the joy of victory that God wanted for Israel. In our text for this morning, we come to see how Joshua came to know that victory. And it didn't come as he expected. Victory with God rarely comes as expected. God tells us in Isaiah 58, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We read in 1 Corinthians that God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God's ways are not our ways, brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen? There you go. God almost always does things quite differently. And never is that more clear in Jericho. It made no sense. It wasn't reasonable. But it was of God. And Joshua believed that. And in spite of what it sounded like or what it looked, he obediently cast himself, heart and soul, into doing exactly what God wanted him to do. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make the long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of God. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And so here's the battle plan. In the first seven verses we read, God tells Joshua to line up his soldiers and march in possession, a position 
around the city in absolute silence, except for seven priests who are to play their trumpets while carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They were to do so once a day for six days. Now Jericho covers about 10 acres, and so each march around would be about 25 or 30 minutes. Then God told them on the seventh day they are to march around seven times doing the same thing, and then they finished, they were to stop and shout, and the walls would crumble. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark with the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard were walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. In this story, we see the power of the kingdom of God is bold obedience to faith in God. This is true, not only for Joshua, but also for us. In this, we should learn that victory comes in our own Jerichos only when we learn to trust and obey God. Always. Not with our mouths, 
not just with our hearts and actions, but also with our very souls and our lives. We might, not, we might not understand God's plan or timing or methods, but if we want to overcome the walls and barriers and obstacles we face in life, we must obediently submit to God in his ways. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, the Apostle Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. More often than not, we see battle point, our own battle uh, plans superior to God. When we, his plan doesn't seem to fit our schedule, our opinion, or gifting, we just assume that can't be God's plan. This happens because when we plan and strategize outside the commands and counsel of the Holy Spirit, the flesh of our emotions becomes our compass. Joshua and the people of Israel were able to destroy a formidable barrier that stood before them because not only they, did they receive the orders from God, but they also obeyed with them without question, question or revision. That is unheard of today. Amen? That is unheard of today. Amen? <laughs> this is... Um, well, I'll get to it. The kingdom of God. And Jesus claims to be Lord of that kingdom, his kingdom, is always a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge to our self-supremacy, I would say. We intuitively perceive Jesus' claim as Lord or, um, or I want to say it, but the, claim, the claim that we need to surrender all seems to be a primary threat to us to control our own lives. Put it this way, the government and our employers and numerous leaders may tell us what to do. Even our families at times uh, make demands on us and, that we, and we submit, submit to them. But deep down in our heart, deep down in our hearts, there is an area that everyone has in their lives that we desperately clutch onto and that area is the place that where we control and we decide and we rule. And when Jesus approaches us, every, every human part that Jesus approaches, always he finds at that spot someone who would rather die than do what they're told to do. Does Jesus really lay this deep, absolute claim on every life? Viewed through the lenses of North American Christianity, you wouldn't think so. Not if that's normative. But Jesus has absolute claim to rule all of the hearts of mankind, and that is, was his core expectation right from the beginning. He commonly allowed people to address him as Lord, a word that means master in the covenant title in the Old Testament for God. Jesus taught that obedience was the only proper response to his demands and to his teaching. In the kingdom of God, obedience is not up for negotiation. Jesus commands to follow him, challenges us to abandon our most cherished dreams for the sake of his kingdom. And Jesus really, 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 really expects us for our full commitment. 
Jesus was and Jesus is and Jesus will always be a Savior who freely forgives sin, but then he also demands total commitment in return. Looking at what he gives us in return, we shouldn't be think we're giving up very much. He no longer approaches humanity as an itinerant carpenter, but he comes as a king on a conquest. Looking across the ages and, and looking across the galaxies, his purpose is to transform not only individual hearts and lives, but also cultures and even physical creation itself. For all of us who have heard Jesus' voice and claimed his name, Jesus' conquest of a runaway planet by bold obedience should be the main business that we have in the church and in our lives. In a society where tolerance stretched to its breaking point is seen to be a virtue, we as Christians must choose. Uncomfortably, Jesus presents with us to only alternatives to this. If we are not for him and not for his kingdom with all our full heart and soul and mind, then we are against him. And the other alternative is when we shy away from true commitment and put on the the shabby rags of religious games and pretense, then we are rebels also. Now we would say that's, we don't like those two. We can't find ourselves in one of them. We're always in one of those. But both of these options, remember now, is it results in banishment from the kingdom of God. And the only good news we have is the gospel. The good news is that by the power of the kingdom of God, Jesus boldly obeyed and crawled up on a cross and sacrificed himself for us in our place for our sins so we might be forgiven and redeemed and restored back to God. So we might live out our new lives in the kingdom of God here on earth and forever with God in the glory of heaven. The writer Mark Noel opens his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, by stating that the scandal of the evangelical mind is largely that there isn't one. Today, even born-again Christians find themselves at odds with some of the most basic principles and truths of the Bible that are historically accepted by simply taking the position they have a different view. Truth is now bent to the fit of our will rather than God's. This isn't how it worked for Joshua and the nation of Israel. They believed God meant what he said, even though he didn't understand it or didn't agree with it. The walls of Jericho did not fall down because of the ground vibrations created by the marching or the sound waves that were caused by the trumpets. The walls of Jericho fell because Joshua and the people of God believed who God said he was and they responded with bold obedience and Hebrews 11.30 tells us by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days their faith and trusting in God's promise dropped those walls not ground vibrations or sound waves I've even heard you know it was an earthquake <clears throat> doesn't matter God did it. God did it. Their bold obedience and trusting God's ways called the walls to crumble. They also had faith in God's timing. 
God could have crumbled the walls after one day instead of seven. Why didn't he? Hebrews 6.12 says those who practice patience inherit the promises of God. God said seven days. So it was seven days. The Bible tells us faith and, and patience come together. It's like, don't be hasty. There we go. <laughs> this is a leadership joke. So. God's plan said seven days. God's timing is rarely ours, but it's always perfect. There are no clocks in heaven, brother and sister, because eternity can't be measured. <clears throat> when God puts a period to the end of a sentence, we have no right to change it to a question mark. What God says, God means. Amen? Selective obedience is not convenience, it's disobedience. The same is true about delayed obedience. When God speaks, it's time to quit asking questions and start listening and start obeying. Everything we need to do and know is in the Bible. We are treading dangerous ground when we subtract or extrapolate or reinterpret his word. When we live our lives by the princes of the word of God, his presence and his power will fill our souls and we will know victory. And this is extremely relevant for the times that we live in. This past week, American columnist Cal Thomas wrote this. Deep beneath the lawlessness spreading like the spreading like the virus across this land is a, a moral and spiritual drought that politicians do not have the power to fix. In previous generations, fiery preachers would remind the citizens of our land of the consequences of living unrestrained and uncomfortable lives and, un and also being unaccountable. They called it, this is, they called it this, they called it sin. Front page paper, they called it sin. But that diagnosis has virtually disappeared, along with the generation of Billy Graham, and we are left with a current moral desert. And we can't say, though, that we've been warned by history and experience about these things. We have seen unrestrained living, unrestrained living for quite a while. And the first leaders of our countries knew that personal and national freedom are in jeopardy if the people become wicked and immoral. America's second president, John Adams, said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Today we stand before walls, walls of fear and anger and division caused by, yes, a pandemic, but also intellectual arrogance and personal entitlement and individual rights and gender ma manipulation and economic instability and political incompetence and anarchists and racial conflict. These are walls all around us. We are living in a day of unrestrained wickedness and unaccountable immorality. And so it's because everything that we do in these days outside of God's obedience is simply self-centered 
activity, just filling space of the breadth of time that we have here on earth. Thomas Akempis once said, instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is. He says, whoever strives to withdraw from obedience also withdraws from the grace of God. Archibald Rutledge tells of a time when he met a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. Heartbroken, the man explained how it happened. Because he worked in the bush, he always took his dog with him. And so uh, on this morning, he left his animal in a clearing and gave him a command to uh, stay there and watch his lunch bucket until he went back into the forest and come back. His faithful friends understood, and that's exactly what his dog did. But a fire started in the woods during that time, and soon the blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left. But the dog didn't move. He stayed right there in perfect obedience to his master's word, and he died in a fire, untethered next to the lunch bucket. With tearful eyes, the dog's owner said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew he would always faithfully do it. Brothers and sisters, are those the words that Jesus would use to describe us? Are we living a life of bold obedience to to the Master's word? Does he know that we will always faithfully do as he commands, regardless of the cost or the danger? The cost of obedience is nothing compared to the cost of disobedience. Look at the walls around us. Peter Forsyth was, was right when he said, the first duty of every soul is to not find its freedom, but its master. The church today is dormant because it's no longer the church militant. We are called to be just as bold and courageous as Joshua was back in those days. The power of the kingdom of God that flowed down out of Pentecost is inexhaustible and it's just available today as it was back then. And we must wake up. We must claim our birthright as children of the king, declaring victory over victory over what's going on in the world. For the true follower of Jesus Christ, obedience is not an option. It's a faithful obligation. We are called to shout the same shout of victory that God's people did on that day. When we do the walls between the power of the risen Christ and the lost world around us will crumble and all that is of God will joyfully be rescued and redeemed and claimed back to him. Dr. B.J. Miller once said, it is much greater blessing to do what God gives us to do no matter how hard it is than it is to face the consequences of not doing it. The choice we have is the choice of living an obedient life and pursuing, excuse me, we have a, cho- a choice to not live an obedient life and pursue, ni- pursue our own agenda. And the other one is just to just give ourselves to God. The old crisis of the apple in Eden and the voice of God reappears in our lives every day. Caesar or Christ is the question that we face as Christians. The vast, attractive, skeptical world with its pleasures and ambitions and comforts and promises or the humble, majestic, dangerous, joy-filled, victorious walk with the man who is the king of the kingdom.
A few weeks ago, we saw Rahab facing that same choice. She chose God. And we read of her victory at the end of uh, Joshua 6 here and the way that she took hold of it and what happened to her family. But to the two men who had spied in the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with the fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron. They were put into the treasury for the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out in Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall lay he a foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord is with Joshua, and his fame was on all the land. Brothers and sisters, we all face our Jerichos on a regular basis. The walls will crumble when we obediently trust God. In reflecting back on uh, the past two weeks, last week, chapter 5 and 6, it's kind of five little, I think, truths we need to consider at this point, not only in today, but in the history of our church to come. First of all, our greatest victories will come by acknowledging how weak we are in our own strength. Amen. As Joshua bowed before the Lord in preparing for the battle, so we will gain victory in our battles if we are desperately on our knees and our faces before, before the Lord in prayer. Secondly, we will never know the victory God desires for us if we don't work together. We need each other. We've been created for each other. And that's hard for us because all this stuff that's expected of us is expected for us to separate. But we've got to work through that. We've really got to work through that. The priests and the people of God obeyed and cooperated together, and they, overcome, they overcame the enemy. We are united in our common ability to shout for victory too. Thirdly, when we follow God's methods and principles, we will win the battle. God will get the glory and we gain the victory. God uses the foolish methods and and, uh, things to get things done. God uses foolish people to do it. His way might not make sense, but he knows best. Fourth, unbelief sees rivers and walls as obstacles. But faith in God sees both of those as opportunities. Rivers and walls cause us to take our eyes off of God and look to our, our own power. And we will fail if we do that. Trusting in God means everything is possible. Fifth, the ground at the cross is level. We all stand before God in the same stance. 
he used Rahab just as powerfully as he used Joshua. The difference between God's grace and God's wrath is our dependent on being obedient to God's sovereign will. The truth is we live in a fallen world that is ruled by the evil one and we are constantly being blindsided by our own self-centeredness. And because it is so, God asks us to do the, the strange things that he tells us to do. We must, brothers and sisters, we must totally live according to the word of God. God's word and our obedience response to that will give us victory. In Psalm 119, we read, the psalmist proclaims, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the question God is asking us this morning is, are, are we willing to obediently submit to God's demands? And the answer to that question will determine whether we can cross uncrossable rivers or overcome impassable walls. And I pray that we would do so. Uh, his victory is not only for eternity. His victory starts today if we take that step forward. Some years ago, an unknown poet penned the following words. Where our captain bids us go, tis not ours to murmur, no. He that gives the sword and shield chooses to the battlefield where and how we fight the foe. Or to put it another way, the songwriter John Seamus wrote, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And all God's people said, Amen.